This morning we're looking at God's Word in Exodus chapter 1. I'll be reading verses 15, 115 through 2.10. Hear now the Word of the Lord. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called to the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took, him, took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. Observing the pattern of warfare over history, including how many well-planned battles didn't happen the way they were planned, 19th century Prussian Field Marshal Helmuth von Moltke, I'm sure I didn't say that right, famously wrote, No plan of operations extends with any certainty beyond the first contact with the main hostile force. Or as boxer Mike Tyson later paraphrased that, everybody has plans until they get hit the first time. So, sure, you can have a plan. You can have a plan of attack, a plan of conquest, a plan for your life, but there's someone out there with another plan, and their plan is probably going to mess up your plan. And no plan of ours survives first contact with any hostile force. So as we consider the course of our own lives and the bigger picture of God's good promises to all His children, we may find comfort in knowing that God has a plan, but at the same time be concerned knowing that He's not the only one who has a plan. The enemy of God, as well as countless human powers, have plans that go against what God has designed for the world, for His people, and for our own lives. And sometimes those plans affect us and they hurt us deeply. So how does God's plan account 
for contact with the enemy hostile force? How can we have confidence and hope in a future that is still being fought over? If anyone had a right to ask such questions, it would be the Israelites enslaved in Egypt where they had been for hundreds of years, as we saw last week, feeling forgotten and perhaps abandoned by God. The God who had once expressed such wonderful plans and intentions for them. Had God's plans failed? Had the mighty hand of Pharaoh overcome the hand of Yahweh? And what about us? What is our role in the story of God's plans? Do we sit back and watch as greater powers fight it out, not daring to get involved or intervene until the dust settles? Because after all, what can we do? Or do we in our simple lives have a role somehow in God's great plan? I would suggest this morning on the authority of Scripture that there are many hands that do God's work. And God uses the works of all these many hands to carry out a plan that never fails. The first type of hands that we see at work are the hands that oppose. The hands that oppose. When we last saw our heroes, the Israelites, they were being oppressed, they were enslaved, they were forced into hard labor. And yet, despite all that we saw, God continued to bless them and to keep His promises, and to multiply them greatly, even in their enslavement. But that fruitfulness, that multiplication, that blessing does not sit well with the enemies of God. And so when forced labor didn't didn't oppress them to the point that they ceased to multiply, Pharaoh said this in Exodus 1.15, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. And then in verse 22, when that plan failed, he told all the, the Egyptians, he commanded all his people, every son that is born of the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now to understand the plan that he's putting in place, consider that he wasn't just planning to cut the population by half. He was actually planning to eliminate any Israelite who might someday fight or stand up against Egypt. Yes, he was doing that. But if only the girls were left, they would be forced to join Egyptian homes. And after one generation, the Israelites would be no more. That's the plan. The plan wasn't to reduce the number of God's people. The plan was to eliminate them, to wipe them out from the face of the earth. Now, Pharaoh doesn't realize it, but in doing so, he is a pawn in a much bigger game. After the serpent tempted Eve and introduced sin to mankind, one of the curses that God placed upon Satan was this in Genesis 3. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. From the moment that sin entered the world, sin was not just a matter of dysfunction or not living up to your potential. Sin is outright rebellion against God and through it, Satan wages war on God's kingdom. And the targets of his attack are God's people with whom he has perpetual enmity. As we sing sometimes, still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. 
His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not His equal. Or as Jesus said in John 8, speaking to His enemies, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. When Pharaoh seeks to wipe out God's people from the face of the earth, he is carrying out Satan's long-term plan to eliminate the image bearers of God from the earth. God's people, his children, are made in his image, and Satan despises and opposes the image of God and would eliminate it and corrupt it and distort it and wipe it out from the face of the earth, like Herod ordering all the children in Bethlehem to be killed, like Pilate and the high priest setting up Christ's execution, the serpent's enmity towards God is carried out on those that God has called His own. But here's the good news. These hands that oppose cannot help but carry out God's plan. The hands that oppose God unwittingly, unintentionally, inevitably carry out God's plan anyway, despite what they aim to do. I've shared with you before, and I'm sure I'll share with you it again, the story from uh, the Silmarillion, the, the story of the creation narrative that is in the background of the Lord of the Rings uh, books. There's a story of how the one God leads all the angels in the song of creation, but one of them, by name Melkor, wants to sing his own song. And so he keeps interrupting the beautiful harmony that the angels are singing, that the Lord leads them, and he interrupts it with his own song. So strong is his music, so beautiful his voice, that he leads other angels into his melody, and they start to sing along with him. As anyone who's been in a choir knows what that's like, if this guy starts singing off-key, suddenly you're off-key with him, if you're a bad singer like me. But each time, Melkor introduces a new, different, discordant theme the Lord, the great conductor, incorporates it into the beautiful melody. And it turns out he was just singing what was already composed. And he can't help but be in harmony with what the Lord is leading. And again and again he tries and fights and wants to sing his own thing. And the Lord just brings it back into the beautiful triumphant chorus. And as it ends, the Lord says to the angels of creation, He says, what you just sang, you will now see. Essentially, you just sang out history and the entire history of the world you're going to see is this song that you just sang. And then to Melchor, the one who wanted to do his own thing, he says these words, You will see that no theme may be played that doesn't have its uttermost source in me, nor can anyone alter the music in my despite. For he that attempts this shall prove but mine instrument in the devising of things more wonderful which he himself hath not imagined. The hands that oppose God's people, the hands that oppose God's plan, the voices that try to rise up against him and change the melody are only playing their part in God's drama of redemption, a part that God had planned out for them long ago. So much so, even when the enemies of God put Christ on the cross here is how the disciples remembered it in Acts 4. Truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and all the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan 
had predestined to take place. They thought they were putting God's servant to death and putting an end to the kingdom of God. But little did they know, they just advanced the plan of God exactly the way He wanted it to go. Even the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who had led God's people into exile, who had rebelled against God and set up his own idols, even he recognizes the futility of thinking you can do anything to oppose God's plan. And he confesses this in Daniel 4. God does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, what have you done? Children of God, when you consider the hands that oppose Find peace and find comfort in this fact. That there is no enemy. There is no nation. There is no political movement. There is no evil power. Even opposing God's people and actively trying to snuff them out, they cannot, cannot, cannot succeed. Those who oppose God will learn in the end that they can only do God's work. They find themselves but one of the many hands that move God's plan forward in a way they never intended. Even Pharaoh's plan. Even Pharaoh's plan. What did it ultimately accomplish? As we see in the story, it ends up placing Moses in the palace. Were it not for Pharaoh's plan, Moses would not have ended up in the palace. It was Pharaoh's plan that brought him there. His hand that moved God's plan forward so that Moses received all the training and the education and the access that he needed to prepare him to lead God's people to the promised land. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. The hands that oppose still do God's work. There's more to the story though. More characters than just the enemy and God. There are more hands than the hands that oppose. There are also the hands that obey. And as we ourselves step into the roles that God has given us in His drama, we see that we too can be hands that obey, that carry out the will of God. The midwives in this story are a great example. Verses 17 through 19, they feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. They let the male children live. The king of Egypt called them and said to them, Why'd you do this? Why'd you let them live? And the midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are, they made up an excuse. They, they lied to Pharaoh. Because we saw earlier, they, they had chosen, because they feared God, they chose to let the children live. And they lied to Pharaoh about it. There's a lot we could comment on there. But let's focus on one thing. The midwives obeyed God. What would be the penalty, do you think, for disobeying Pharaoh if he knew that they were lying to him and disobeying his order? Probably death. So sure, they, they would understandably fear Pharaoh. But they had a greater fear. A holy fear. Not a terror of God, but a reverence, an awe, a recognition of the power of God that exceeded the power of Pharaoh. And their fear of God led them to obedience to God, which led them to disobey Pharaoh. To have hands that obey God. 
we will at times need to disobey other voices, which we can only do if our fear, our holy, righteous, loving fear of God outsizes our fear of those that oppose Him. Another lesson for another time is to consider that these women are commended by God and blessed by God for lying to Pharaoh, which may challenge some of our assumptions about how God's commandments are to be applied in difficult situations. But in fact, notice how these verses are filled with disobedient women. That's one thing I love about this this passage. There are a few, more than a few, disobedient women here. The midwives who are named, given names in Scripture, Shifra and Pua, they disobey Pharaoh. Moses' mother, Yochebed, disobeys Pharaoh's command. Moses' sister, Miriam, disobeys Pharaoh's command. Even Pharaoh's daughter and her servant, as they draw Moses out of the water and recognize that he is a Hebrew child that is under the sentence of death, even they disobey. Exodus 2, verse 6 When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. The Hebrew that her father had told her to kill, she disobeyed. These disobedient women, troublemakers in Pharaoh's kingdom, are obedient to the will and the ways of God, and they become the hands that obey God and move His plan forward. As they do so, they are part of the carrying out of God's plan we see in Exodus 1.20. Because the midwives obeyed, the people multiplied and grew very strong. Moses' mother, Yochebed, Miriam, his sister, Pharaoh's daughter, through their disobedient obedience, moved God's prophet into place and set up the rescue of God's people. They were, they were doing what the apostles would later do in Jesus' name when they disobeyed earthly authorities in order to obey God's Word, saying in Acts 5, we must obey God rather than men. Now such disobedient obedience is not always as clear and as obvious as it would be in this story. I think if faced with the question of whether or not to throw a child into the river, we would choose to disobey earthly authorities and obey God's command to preserve and keep life. But the authorities that we most often need to oppose are not always kings and pharaohs. In fact, it's less likely, I suspect, that most of us will need to apply this in a political sense. The challenge we face is that when when obedience to God calls us to go against something we want or something that we understand, Times when we need to echo the words of Jesus who prayed in Luke 22, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Christ, before His crucifixion, felt that compulsion, that desire to turn away from what He knew God had planned. And yet He said, I will be the hands that obey. Not my will, but God's. We are called to obey God very often by disobeying the culture that we live in to reject our culture's praise of materialism and, the, and consumption and obsession with image, to disobey our culture by devoting a day each week for rest, 
to give of our income without expecting a personal return, to befriend an unpopular or different or difficult person, to love our neighbor while still rejecting their sin, and in hundreds of thousands of other ways to disobey in order to obey. And as we obey God, like Miriam, like Shifra and Pua, like Johebed, we become the hands that carry out God's plan. You might not see it. Moses' mother, Yochebed, she, to our knowledge, did not live to see how her disobedient obedience set up the deliverance of God. The midwives probably didn't see how their disobedience led to the deliverance of God's people. You might not see how your disobedience really moves forward the plan of God. But your confidence comes from this. Not that you see and understand and can make sense of what God has called you to do. But that there is more, one more hand at work. That one more hand at work gives us confidence to obey. And that is that there is the hand that ordains. The hands that oppose cannot help but carry out God's plan. The hands that obey take part in carrying out God's plan even when we don't understand. But all of that is overseen and directed and controlled by the hand that ordains. We've already seen the hand of God at work in this story. We've seen that God uses Pharaoh's edict and the midwives' disobedience and Yocheba's desperation to set up His plan of deliverance through Moses. Let's look at Exodus 1, 20-21. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, He gave them families. I find it interesting that the Holy Spirit puts these two verses, these two observations, side by side. The people multiplied. They had children. Their families grew. Their nation grew. But God is the one who gives the families. God is the one who makes them multiply. Yes, the midwives did their part, but God is the one who makes the nation grow. Or look at what Yochebed, Moses' mother, does in Exodus 2. She hid him three months. And then when she could hide him no longer, she took from a basket and, and put the child in the basket and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Uh, his sister Miriam stands at a distance to know what would happen. And then the daughter of Pharaoh just so happens, just coincidentally, just of all the places she could have been, just happened to be there at that point in the river when she went down to bathe and sees the basket and sends her servant woman to get it. Yochebed, Moses' mother, places her child in a homemade basket and sets him among the reeds of the Nile River. And I, I love, if you've ever seen the, the Prince of Egypt, the animated movie of, of the Exodus account, uh, the way it shows that basket going down the Nile and all the, the dangers that it would face. And how it just so happened to safely arrive at this perfect place where it would be taken in by the one person with the power to boldly, publicly disobey Pharaoh. It just so happened just so happens that the basket ends up in the very spot it needs to be at the very moment it needs to be. Do you believe in coincidences? Do you believe in luck? Or do you believe that the hand of God directs and moves all things? For the Christian who believes in God at work, there's no such thing as it just so happened. There's no such thing as good or bad luck. There is instead the hand of God at work, sovereign, powerful. As described in the familiar 
and yet no less true words of Romans 8.28. For those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. My brothers and sisters, those words cannot be true if there is such a thing as luck or if there is such a thing as coincidence or chance or if it's all down to the power that we have to make things come together for good. Those verses, those words can only be true if there is a hand behind the hands at work. Without that insurance, we have no hope, no assurance that that our actions are meaningful in any way. That the works of our hands will succeed, that God's plan will come to be, or that the hands of evil will not ultimately overcome us. We need that assurance that there are hands at work ordaining all things, the hand of God. I was reminded of this in a movie I saw lately where two characters named Rocket and Lila are, are having a, a, an emotional, heartfelt conversation because they both have gone through unspeakable trauma. They were created by evil people for evil purposes and they were abused mightily through their whole lives. And Rocket is getting to the point where he is done. He is giving up. He's ready to be through with it all because it's pointless. If the hands that created him made him for evil and are still winning the day, then there's no purpose for him. His life is meaningless. And Lila argues with him and assures him and says, there are the hands that made us, but there are the hands that guide the hands that made us. Or as we hear in Isaiah 46, God says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel will stand. I will accomplish my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have proposed and I will do it. There are many hands at work in the world, but God says, my hand ordains. My hand determines what will come to pass through the hands that oppose, through the hands that obey. It is always God's hand at work. In the story of the birth of Moses, though we see many hands at work, some to oppose and some to obey, it is the Lord's hand above and behind it all. We just went through Proverbs. I'm going to remind you of two Proverbs that we heard at least once, perhaps more than once, that speak to this. Proverbs 16.9, The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Man can do what he chooses to do. He can put his hands to work, but it is God who determines what will happen. Proverbs 16.33, The lot is cast into the lap, or we might say the dice are rolled, but it's every decision is from the Lord. There is no action, There is no plan of man but what works towards God's ends. There is no chance, there is no randomness that God has to account for and adapt to. There was no possibility that baby Moses would have landed anywhere else. There was no scenario where he was not going to be raised by his own mother and then adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. There was no other way for those things to work out because God from the beginning had declared them to be so and His hands were at work 
guiding each step to make sure it happened. And so Scripture can say with confidence to me and to you in Philippians 1, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Leave that up there for just a minute. Please notice what that is not saying. That is not saying that God began a good work in you. Now, Christian, it's up to you to carry it on to completion. No. He who began the good work will carry it to completion. He will use hands that you do not expect. He will use hands that oppose His work. He will use hands that grieve and that harm. And He will use hands that bless and obey and preserve. And He will use you as well. But He will complete the good work that He began. But you can only be sure. You can only be sure of that if God's hand is at work ordaining all things. If His hand is removed, it is chaos. It is randomness. It is uncertainty. But with God's hand at work, what He has promised will be true. And we, as we're going to sing in a little bit, we expect a bright tomorrow. All must be well. How do we know that God's hand is at work guiding all things? We know because that plan begins and ends with Jesus. As we look at where we are in history, we can be assured that we are right on track. That everything is moving in the same direction that God set from the beginning. And it's being carried out through the Gospel of Jesus As a few of you know, don't ever let me near tools, especially woodworking equipment. Okay? I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not sure what I'm going to do when I get wood and tools, and I have no idea how I'm going to do it. And the few times that I have tried, I will start with something and it changes. I started to make a birdhouse. It became a bookshelf that then turned into a shoe rack. And in the end, I decided it was a piece of modern abstract sculpture in wood and nail and a little bit of blood. But when you have a master builder at work, they see the picture from the beginning and their skilled hands bring it to existence. They say, here's what I'm going to do, and here's exactly how I'm going to do it. Now listen to how God, the master craftsman, has done exactly that in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 1, begins by saying, God shows us, or God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. For He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. This is the, the craftsman saying, I have a picture in my head of exactly what I'm going to do, and I'm going to carry it out. Before he even started, he knew exactly what the plan was and what it was going to look like in the end. What is it that we should be holy and blameless before him? That's the final product. You will be holy and blameless. In love, here's how he did it. Here's the tools he used. In love, he predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the, the purpose of His will, that plan He's had from the beginning. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. This is the tools He's using. This is how He's carrying out His perfect plan through Jesus Christ, through His death on the cross. We have redemption. We have forgiveness. We are being made holy and blameless, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. 
making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ. This plan, this vision, this picture of what He would do, He set it out in Christ and He said, here's what I'm going to do. Look at Jesus and know what my plan is as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Brothers and sisters, in all our circumstances, from beginning to end, in sickness and in sorrow, in pain and in confusion, the master craftsman is still at work. From, from before the foundation of the world, he pictured what he was going to do with you. And he puts that plan into motion with Christ. And as Christ dies for your sins, the plan to make you holy and blameless comes into reality. He knows exactly what He's doing. He knows exactly how He's going to do it. And no one, neither the hands that oppose nor even the hands that obey, have the power to alter His purposes. And so, as we're going to sing in just a minute, we sing with confidence that all will be well. Brothers and sisters, there are many hands that carry out the plans of God. Some despite themselves and some because He has moved in our hearts to do so. But our assurance is that it is God at work in all things to carry on to completion the good work He has started. They saw it in Moses. They saw it in Egypt. We see it in Christ. And you see it in your own life. All will be well because God is at work. Let us pray with thankful hearts and prepare to praise Him for it. Our gracious God, we don't know how You're going to make all things as You've promised that they will be. But we have seen what You are doing in Christ. That the plan You set forth before the beginning of the world, that plan is being carried out even today. We have certainty that we can obey. We can do what You've called us to do. And it is not in vain. We can have certainty that whatever hands oppose us, Your people, your children, your church, your kingdom. They will not succeed in their own purposes. They will only succeed in moving forward the perfect plan that you've set forth in Jesus Christ. In His name we pray with joy and with confidence. Amen.